Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. Welcome, listeners, to the Russell Moore Show. It is Family Reunion Day on the show with Beth Moore, who has a new book called All My Knotted Up Life, a memoir. Uh, She's been uh, talking about it all over the country. And I've already heard from lots of people reading it. I got to read it to earlier uh, than most people, and I was glad <laughs> to. And and there are many other people who are uh, reading it. Uh, my wife, Maria, who's in the room with me today, she's not usually uh, when we have these conversations, but she said that she preferred uh, listening to the audiobook because uh, she she really enjoyed hearing uh, Beth tell this story as well as just reading it. Beth Moore, welcome to the Russell Moore Show. I am so happy to be on here with you today, and I'm so glad Maria's in the room. I'm sending a ton of love to her. You know, when you look at this book, a lot of it is really uh, heavy. I mean, there are parts of it that are really heavy, and you're an Enneagram Seven, uh, I think, uh, likes to, likes to oh, have yes. a good time and plow forward that way. It must have been hard to kind of sit down and say, "Okay, I'm going to look at all of it." Yes. Oh, golly, it, it absolutely was. I am considerably bouncy. I bounce back easily. All of those <laughs> things, but it's such a a mash up, you know, to look back over the course of, of a life as long as mine and as troubled as mine. And it's been mm-hmm. all of these things, Russell, at the same time. And so there was no way to be true and not go to, to both of those extremities mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because I've had both a great time and a terrifying time on this planet. So it's just like, Lord, somewhere in the middle of that uh, is my real life. You in, I believe it was 2018, all the years mashed together in my mind right now. But in 2018, you put a picture up of yourself on social media as a young girl. Um, We were in the middle of all kinds of fights and revelations over sexual abuse. And you said that that was my story uh, as a young girl. But you really talked about it more than you ever have in this book. Yes. And I wonder what that's what that's like. Do you step back and say, should I say this? Mm -hmm. Is it going to be too painful to say this? Yes. How did you work through that? Yes. I came to that decision through a course of years whether or not to get specific about those things. If you're listening, um, I do, after all of the years of just being pretty general about uh, my background of abuse, then I got a little more specific by saying that it was under my own roof. And in this book, I actually do identify that it was my father. And it was a big step. But I'm going to tell you something, Russell, over the last years, there are a number of reasons. I think that naturally at my age, I'm, I'm 65, that you, 
you know that you're narrowing down, certainly on your work life, your your life in general, even if you have 20 more years, you know you're narrowing down. And I think there's something about all of us that would wish, if especially for writers, and, and it's it comes naturally to us to put something in words, to be known for who we really are and not something that's sort of a stab that direction, but no, this, this is my more specific story. And I wanted to be free at this late hour in my life to speak specifically to this monster, which is incest and get very specific that when I talk about Jesus being able to deliver you from your shame, I know of what I speak. And the other thing, Russell, I felt like um, sometimes in the larger social media culture, we see abuse treated, in in my opinion and in the opinion of a lot of survivors, lightly. Like I I, want to say, and they do too. I don't think you get it. I don't think you understand the ramifications of it and the lifelong ramification doesn't mean that that you haven't had a lot of healing and that God hasn't put a lot of the broken pieces back together, but you really don't know. And so I I felt like, you know what, let's give this an address and and a a front door. Let's put it in a town and try Mm -hmm. to understand with me what this is like when to tell it, you fear that you are going to tear your family up. But what mm. the truth is, your family is already torn up. It's just right. torn up under the roof. Yeah. You know, and you and I both, we can sit here and think of specific faces uh, right now of people we know who mm. have lived through horrific things, came yes. forward and told their stories. And then people came after them to just yes. uh, attempt to destroy them. Yes. To the point that um, I'm sure a lot of people say, well, I don't, I don't want to tell my story. And that's even more so when, um, when they think, well, it must be my fault. Uh, oh. It must somehow be my fault. Oh, and, it's terrible. And you really take that on head on in this oh. memoir. Russell, when I was a little girl in church, uh, there were so many, many um, pockets of my really young life that are just blackouts. I don't... Hmm. Like, for instance, I remember one of my birthdays and it happened to be on a trip. And I think it was because it was away from home. And so just these odd blackouts. But um, I can remember vividly sitting at my church, First Baptist Church in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, which I, of course, love to the death. It was the oddity about my story is that it was my safe place. My Mm -hmm. home was not my safe place. But I think about that and I would glance around me. Now, Russell, this would have been by the time I was, I'm talking first grade, second grade, I would look around me and I would wish so much that I was a a good little girl. Mm -hmm. And I would wish so much that I had not been so bad. And Russ, (laughs) I what in the world have you done by the first grade? Mm, It would be responsible for that kind of shame, but that is the way a kid takes it on. And the weight of it growing up, feeling at the point, I remember being 14 years old and feeling 80. I mean, 80, just feeling like I I could barely drag myself down the the hall of my home at times because I Mm. just, my childhood just had been ripped right out from under me. Hmm. How, how, what does that do to your sense of the fatherhood of God? I have gone back over this a thousand times because I don't know quite how to explain this except that God must have given me a gift of faith. But let me tell you, somehow as a child, I was able to discern the difference. If you've got a background like mine and you're raised in Sunday school and just those little baby bear chairs and your teacher is sitting Mm -hmm. in one of them, too. And I can just see it because her knees are up real high and her pumps. And I mean, I can just see the whole way she's dressed and everything. And the way they would hold up any of us who were raised in Sunday school, you can even see the same picture in your mind that I'm seeing in mine, which is Jesus and all the children 
are around him. And Russell, somehow, I do not know how, somehow I was able to differentiate that Jesus was safe with children. My Sunday school teachers would say over and over again, Jesus is your best friend. And I would think, I was a thinker. I mean, I I would analyze things as as a young, young child. And I would think to myself, wow, I don't even know my very best friend. So here's what I'm going to tell you. So the way, the breakthrough for me that came with God as father was coming to love Jesus so much. And then him saying, if you know me, you, mm. you know, the father. Mm-hmm. So that would have been, I would, I had to go about it that way. And I, to this day in most of my prayers, because it's been such a monumental relationship, it had, that had to be so transformed in my thinking of what a father figure would be like and alive that I still address most of my journal prayers, um, my dearest Abba, that is my, my mm. father, uh, to mm-hmm. just remind myself over and over again what what a wonderful and and loving and and uh, secure uh, father that I have. But it it was it was really it was really torturous because this was a man that was I don't know another way to put it, but just prancing up and down the aisles at church. I mean, this mm. was somebody so well respected. Uh, And my brothers and sisters, when I spoke with them about about, of course, months ago, months ago, because there were there were seven people, only seven people that I needed to check with my four siblings and Keith and my daughters. There was how how do all of you feel about this? You were the only people. But I'm asking your blessing and your permission. And, you know, all of us were like, well, here we go. Because mm-hmm. there, there is no way we are not going to hear from hosts of people from our hometown because we were a very well-known family in that town. What, what advice would you give to maybe there's a girl who's listening to this right now who's going through a similar situation and she's thinking to herself, what should I do now? I, I would absolutely, and I've had this conversation with a number of classes with children, that I have them think of someone that they think is is safe. Who do you who is safe to you? And I think in terms of a school teacher, I will almost always tell uh, them to go. Please don't, don't take this oddly. What I'm looking for is sort of a maternal figure to them, mm-hmm. because a lot of kids will feel like that's a very safe relationship. So I'll say. Um, what is who is a woman that you might go and tell that you have a secret that you need to share with them? And could they help you with it? And uh, so often, of course, we don't do that. But we if we do, we'll find if we even hint toward it. I'm talking about a child. If they begin to hint toward it with whether it's a Sunday school teacher or someone, someone that they consider to be safe uh and, and that's a hard thing to um, convey to a child. What does that look like? So I'll, I'll go through some descriptions there. But very often, if there is an attentive adult, there are some signs. Now, a, a kid won't always have them. So you believe a kid. Your first reaction must be, okay, I hear you. I believe you. Now, mm-hmm. let's talk this through. And now, how do we step through and and get that child the help that he or she needs? But uh, if like for me, Russell, it should have been so obvious. I had so many side effects from it that for some people, okay, perfect example. I saw somebody right here just recently. He described our family. He had not read the memoir. He just simply said he knew one of my siblings. He saw that the book had come out. He said, I, I'm anxious to read it. He said they were raised in a dysfunctional family. And I, I mm. told my daughter, I said, I am dying to know how he knew. Yeah. So I, I, I know that sounds strange, but after all of this hiding, it will be interesting to know from the outside, what could you tell? What could you see? How did you know? Mm-hmm. I think I might have texted you this, but I was uh, looking at this uh, video someone sent me the other day of a, a 911 operator who got a call from a woman ordering a pizza. And he said, oh, you have the wrong number. 
Uh, and she said, no, 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 I'm, I'm calling to order the pizza. And he said, well, you're calling 911 to order a pizza. And he was able to pick up, oh, wait a minute. She's she's trying to call 911 without somebody dangerous in the house knowing that she's doing that. And that the first thing I thought was how how much we need that kind of intuition and training yes. with Sunday school teachers and vacation yes. Bible school teachers and others yes. just to pick up when there's something wrong that somebody can't talk about. Yes. And let me tell you something. There is even value in that safe person or those safe people in your life, even if you don't tell them. And I, I, I'm going to say this to you. I never told it as a child. I would have been scared to death to, again, because I, I thought this, and it was used against me and against us in our family that because my mother had uh, some emotional health issues and mental health issues, it was sort of used against us that What would mother do? What would happen to her? Well, she might hurt herself and all this. And man, you don't want to be responsible for that. But I will tell you this, Russ. I look back on my childhood with such fondness over those people who were so trustworthy and in whose safekeeping I found myself over and over that. The times that with my, with our you know, GAs was what we called it. It was a mm-hmm. missions organization and for girls in, uh, in the Southern Baptist church and the, the slumber parties we had all without harm and with so much love and so much safety. And my pastors along the way, I said in the book, now that I look back and think about going to my pastor at 18 and telling him as I had been advised to do that, I believed I had a calling. I, I look now at our present culture and could see, I mean, I was sitting pretty to be groomed. I, yeah. I mean, if you've ever met anyone who was just I'm in the absolutely perfect place to be groomed by an abuser, I was. And yet I, I wasn't abused by, uh, by a pastor. And so I say that because I don't want someone to think, you know, I missed it with so-and-so. Um, Mm -hmm. you still had a profound influence. These are people that kept me from cynicism that made me know, oh, no, no. So at no point throughout have I had to think to myself, no one is good. No one does right. No one is trustworthy. No big person is safe for a little person. I had too many, I had too many people that were, trustworthy with me to think that. So there's still value, even if they missed it or tried to get to the bottom of it and, and couldn't do it. I mean, I'll tell you this, I won't speak for all victims, but I'll tell you this. When you come from a home, like I came from, especially in a small town, I've said so many times, if you're going to have a really, really messed up family, you need to move to a big city. You do Mm. not need to be in a small town because everybody knows. And you know, we, I, I, I'll speak for myself. I was proficient at putting out a very, very different kind of facade. I knew Mm. I would have known how to say what I needed to say and what excuses to make. But anybody really discerning would have known something was wrong. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com.
Well, even apart from, you talked about how uh, you look back and see it could have been a really dangerous situation mm-hmm. if there had been the wrong pastor. Uh, even apart from that, though, I'm imagining in 19-something-something, a uh, mm-hmm. pastor of uh, an Arkansas Baptist church has a young woman who comes and says, I think God's uh, calling me to teach mm-hmm. the Bible. You you easily could have had somebody who just said, you know, that doesn't happen. No, no, he hasn't. <laughs> and rejected you. Exactly. It, it, no, you he hasn't called you to do that. No, by that time, by the time that I was at the age where I was beginning to speak, this was the point when I was at First Baptist Church in Houston and my pastor was John Pisano. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I can't help but grin when I say his name because he sort of was a maverick anyway. For all I knew, every place was like that. But as I look back now, I can if, if you have that, if you see your life as a chess piece going across that board, I can see where the Lord had to have gone. Now it needs to be here. Mm-hmm. And then it needs to be way over here. Mm-hmm. And then it's got to be here. It's fascinating. It's fascinating because if it had happened early enough, it would have been, I, I, I would have, if I had been discouraged early on, I, I never would. I was a rule keeper. I, I never would have gone that yeah. direction. Yeah. But how did you, uh, you know, I, I think about my own uh, life and calling, and it wasn't unusual for a, a teenage boy to be called to ministry. And there were people who could show me, here's how you, here's how you teach the Bible. Here's, here's what you do. Yeah. How did you learn what to do? Well, <laughs> For one thing, this was the big deal because I, I said, you know, I had peers that the, the guys would go, I, I'd hear them, you know, at our churches go, God, and then God called me to preach. And it was like, what, what does that feel like when there's mm-hmm. something so specific that God called you to do that? Well, what the only thing I could decipher from my strange calling is that I was just to follow him. I was his. And I've been so thankful for that. And somebody needs needs to hear this. I hope this is encouragement to somebody listening. I've been so thankful for it because if we get it too confused with position, in other words, God called me to position Mm -hmm. instead of his person, you know, we call to Christ, you follow me and I will make you whatever it is I've called you to be. But because I was called to his person instead mm-hmm. of a position, then when it seemed to change, traje- well, same trajectory, but seemed to change uh, that role, I, I just swam with it in that current because it seemed to me, and I still feel that way. If somebody said, what do you see yourself doing in two years? I don't have no idea what, what, mm-hmm. whatever he seems to lead. So that turned out to be very, very good advice. But I'll, I'll tell you that it, talking really was all I could do. You start looking and you're again and again, you're, you're up front leading and you don't, you don't realize it that at the time. It doesn't just seems easy seem, to you at mm-hmm, the time. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yes. So uh, that, that was really it as much as anything. And you were just, thinking I was going to be a Christian motivational speaker, communicator. It was not Mm -hmm. until I got into a Bible doctrine class that I went, this is the most exciting thing I've ever done in my life. And still to this day, okay, Russ, I have to tell people listening, I don't know if they know you're a Sunday school teacher, but of all things, every Sunday morning, I pray for all my pastor friends, and I always pray for you because you teach Sunday school. I usually know what book of the Bible that you're um, teaching out of. And to this day, just a good Bible class, somebody that loves it and finds a lot of life in it and is going to bring context to it and, and the Holy Spirit animating the page. Still, to me, life does not get better than that. I oh, absolutely. I, I would rather teach a Sunday school class than take a Hawaiian vacation. And that 100%. is the God's honest truth. <laughs> that is 100% the truth. And for me, and I don't know if you feel this way, but I would imagine you do because your professor, you, you are a very natural teacher, but I'd rather when people would say something, when they would tease about um, being, you know, tease me about being a pastor, I, I would always think to myself, I want to tell you something. 
I would rather be a Sunday school teacher a yeah. thousand times over than I would want than than to be a pastor. I would. My thing is lessons, not sermons. That just was not. Yeah. That wasn't. I I like to just really take some time with it, and so I love it. I love to be in a class, and I love teaching a class. You know, you know, you know that I have thoughts about this because we've talked about it quite a bit. But I'm when you just look out and you see in evangelical Christianity, uh, we're able to cooperate with different views on something the Bible talks about all the time: yes. baptism. We're yes. able to cooperate over differences mm-hmm. on the Lord's Supper and church government and so forth. But when it comes to differences, when it comes to women and men, mm-hmm. in terms of what exactly how God has gifted us to do, there's this narrowing and narrowing yes. and narrowing and narrowing. And there's always a, a, a different group of people who are the the heretics at the moment. Absolutely. I mean, we, we have to save a, a space on our little uh, boat here for Rick Warren now uh, yes. because of this. Yes. Uh, why our, why our is that Our poor sinking boat. Our poor sinking boat, <laughs> it, it's It's just the worst. We we're, Every time somebody new gets on it, we're like, we're so sorry. We're so sorry. We'll try to find something to laugh about. No, it's the truth. It's the thing. I, I'd love to get to the bottom of that. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how to explain why that is the thing that seems to be one of the biggest hangups of all. And you can, as you said, you can disagree on a thousand other things. But one of the things I have said often, because I was raised in a very conservative um, part of evangelicalism. And now not as I, when I got out in the larger world, I realized, whoa, there, there, there's yeah. stuff to the very far, far right of me. And I'm not mm-hmm. talking politically. I'm talking about, um, I'm talking about doctrinally and then yeah. just the way we practiced our faith. In other words, I taught Sunday school mm-hmm. for years, for 23 years. And, um, but one of the things that I say now that if you ask me, Beth, what would you say if you, you would hold people responsible for that? You feel like they really did, did unfairly um, in in your segment of the body of Christ. And one of the things I would say is that we were taught pretty blatantly certain things as the only orthodox way to possibly interpret it. I mean, that, yeah. that was it. That was it. There was no other way to be sound in Scripture and no other way to, to have a high value of scripture than to hold this particular interpretation of these scriptures. And I said so many times, I have never presented not once being taught or teaching First Timothy 2, for instance. Never, mm-hmm. never, never. What I ended up resenting is too strong a word, but just that complaining about my complaint back would be that instead of saying, now, these are the differing views. Now, where are egalitarians getting this? Well, right. they would be getting it. For, we did that. We did it with eschatology, Russell. Right. Sure. I was yeah. taught in my Bible doctrine class. This was this was going to be in this was dispensationalism. This was going to be amillennialist. This was all of these different views. I was taught, and then my doctrine teacher would say, "This is where I really land." Why mm-hmm. is it we could not do that? With why was it we had to say, "No, no, anyone that teaches any differently about women, it is heresy." And that's just that's just the bottom line. And it, I will be on Twitter talking about a ham sandwich. <laughs> I will be talking about buttermilk cornbread and some guy or, or grapes, grapes. And someone <laughs> will reply to me. They will give me First Timothy chapter two about women not teaching men. I'm, am I teaching you anything? Am I? Am I? I'm trying to share cornbread here. So I, I just, I don't, I do not get it. Um, it feels to me like a, a power move, like it is a yeah. threat. And I want to say this, Russell Moore, I did not 
know a single woman in the entire Southern Baptist Convention. Not one, not one. And I knew a lot of women. I know a lot of women yeah. in that world. That was my world that, mm-hmm. were, that was after the pulpit of her church. Did not know one, not one. Yeah. I have to confess something to you. Uh, I lied this week. And it, it it just, the Lord convicted me of lying uh, a little bit later. Okay. And here's how it happened. Uh, there was a, a great uh, minister that you and I both know, uh, a former Southern Baptist, who came up to me somewhere where I was speaking and said, do you miss the Southern Baptist Convention? And my response was, not one bit. And we kind of laughed and I went on. And uh, later I thought, what a lie, because Maria knows who's sitting here. Uh, I have my Baptist hymnal over here right yes. right next to me with yes. the Book of Common Prayer. Yes. And, uh, and every day, as you know, because we've talked about it, I wake up and think, oh, I, I just, I miss so many people and oh. so much uh, about it and, and so forth. And Same. I just went, you know, that, that really wasn't true. There was a sense in which, you know, I do not miss Southern Baptist Convention executive committee meetings or whatever. No, right. But I can't say that I don't, I don't miss it. And you and I both uh, left around the same time. Uh, I'm wondering, would you... Uh, you know, the old joke that people always make when they find out I'm a country music fan is, you know, if you play the country music song backwards, you get your dog back, your house back, you get your truck back, whatever. Yes. Uh, yes. If we took the timeline and we sort of said, okay, let's just rewind it. Yes. And we don't say anything about Trump. We don't say anything about uh, the uh, sexual abuse stuff. We don't say anything about race or whatever. Uh, we just back it up then our friends are back, our church mm-hmm. is back, our everything is back the way that it was. Uh, would you do that? I'd have to say no. And it's not easy for me to say no, because it was to lose that part of my life and that identity. I mean, and it was as strong an identity as I had if yeah. I was, you know, believer wife, mother, grandmother, it would have been right up there alongside. Um, so that's that's a difficult thing to say. And I'm like you, I'm going to tell you that first year I had to unfollow. Russell, I'm going to I'm going to estimate somewhere between 20 and 25 people, mostly mm-hmm. pastors or either uh, women friends who worked in positions where they were they were talking Southern Baptist life. I had to cut off all, all the channels because not because I hated it, but because every reminder, the words Lottie moon would make me want to cry all of it, certain hymns, all of it. But I'm going to tell you why I think no. Paul says something to the church of the Thessalonians that I have thought about so many times. He tells them, he's wanting to return to them, and he says that he does, and so that God can supply what is lacking in their faith. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't mean so much that their faith is lacking as much as he means so that they can just keep on growing. I, I think that I would have gone to the grave thinking a certain way about liturgical churches. Mm, And mm -hmm. I I don't think I would have wanted to miss this part of my life because it has been so precious to me. And I didn't have negative feeling. What I would have thought, I would not have known. You you hear it said over and over again that, you know, all the ritual, and you'll hear people it, that would have come from my world that we would have said, you know, it's just, it's wooden. It's, you know, it's just, you're, you're not really even having to think about what you're saying. Well, Russell, that's just not true at all. Or it mm-hmm. certainly hasn't been true in these last, um, in these last many months, at least a year and a half, uh, where it has never become commonplace to me. And I look around me and see 
the um, just the sense of holiness and uh, sacredness and worship on these faces. And I, I think that it was very intentional of the Lord. Now, this is this is the knotted up part. Uh, all mm-hmm. of it's not. I, I wish to heaven that that my life was a little like this was good and this was bad. But no, instead, it's just all in, in a big knot because um, when I think about how I got there, um, Amanda asked me something just here recently. She said, Mother, can you check your journal in October, November of 2016 and tell me if you wrote anything down about this? And I looked back and I was nearly traumatized by what I wrote. Mm-hmm. I told her, I said, you know what? I, I've got her answer, but I said, I'm going to have to put this up because it was so. So I yeah. got there such such a traumatizing way. And yet I wouldn't have wanted to trade this for anything. Yeah. So I just don't know. And the other thing, Russ, what is most important to me in all the world? This is not, this is not spiritual talk here. This is not, I mean it. I I mean this when I say it was the most important thing in the world to me is that I get through this with Jesus yeah. Um, with with my faith and my faith alive and that my relationship with him is very alive. And in this process, I mean, I've had to, I've had to practice my faith. I've had like, this would have been no time to give up the spiritual disciplines. Oh, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for that season of my life when I can just settle in and, you know, start getting lazy about the spiritual disciplines. Somehow that hadn't happened in my adult life yet because I, the Lord just keeps me in a situation constantly where, you know, I'm desperate for him. Mm. So no, I, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would have missed a group of people that have become so precious to me. And I would have, I would have been very ignorant about the worship practices and ways of some of our liturgical brothers and sisters. Yeah. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I was talking to a church that wanted uh, me to talk to their leadership about whether or not they should stay in the Southern Baptist Convention or leave. And I said, okay, I'll talk to you, but I will only talk about the positive side. Uh, I'm not going to say that's the only side, but I don't feel called to give you the other point of view. I mean, obviously yes. I left, but I, I want to tell you the good things yes. uh, about what's going on in the SBC, and I did. And at, at the end of it, someone said, yeah, but uh, if you could go back and do it again, would you stay? And what did I said, you say? I said, I'm going to say no, only because I'm too Baptist to say hell no. Uh, <laughs> and it was the most honest answer I could find at the moment. And I think... Uh, I, I did I, not see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think probably what I what I should say in that situation is, well, it's knotted up. You know, yes. the life is is yes. knotted up. There yes. there's so much joy and so much pain uh together. And that who you can know, discern. Yeah. And there's there's people 
that have gone through this uh, all over the place who are grieving. And one of the things they're grieving is uh, broken friendship. Oh, and I mean, you know, you think about there are things that I will think about, Beth, and I will think, oh, I want to call so and so. And oh, oh, I want to catch up so and so about this or whatever it is, and immediately think, oh, that person's not talking to me, or be somewhere in an airport or something and see somebody and think, well, I better not go up and talk to that person because it'll get them in trouble. <laughs> those those yes. sorts of, of things. I mean, that's the worst part. And there are a lot of people who who are going through that uh, in their lives. What counsel do you give for them? It, it really is heartbreaking. Uh, that that of course is. The, the worst part of it is the loss of relationships. And for people that have been in, uh, I, I was thinking about us and people like us that Russ, we weren't just like sprinkled in Baptist life. We weren't like right. Presbyterians in Baptist life. We were right. fully immersed. I'm talking about yes. all the way under. I've said so many times to anyone who, because lots of people ask me about you and, you know, cause you know, you're my son, but they <laughs> ask me about you, but, but I say all the time, you know, the thing about it is that we were in two different roles, but we, the, what we have in common is we could not possibly have been more involved in Southern Baptist life and lifelong, right. you know, lifelong. Right. It was all I ever, ever knew. And so that, that is enormous. And you're all your friendships and all that, that network of relationships. And you do, I even thought, you know, here, it, even in the last couple of days over the memoir, um, I, I, I knew that a couple of my Southern Baptist pastor friends had, I knew they had gotten the book and, you know, then I get vain imaginations that I didn't hear from them. And I thought, I, you know, I I wonder if, I wonder if they, if they hate me because I wonder if they could tell how much I love them. But I had the strangest question come to me about, about us and what both families of Moors had Mm -hmm. been through live on a live stream. And it's sort of like, it caught me off guard. I had been speaking. It was for the a launch event for the um, for the memoir, and we had a Q and A at the end. And so it was someone asking. You know, they were very devoted to their Southern Baptist Church, and they were like, you know, but the thing about it is, it it worries us. They said. Then we think about. They said we have a great respect for Russell, and we love you so dearly, and you know it messes with us. And what would you? say to us. And what I'm able to say very, very quickly, because this is the truth, is I said, you need to know and this. I don't even know that this is a real word. I said, I can speak for Russ. I said, I can't, I can't speak for him on a lot of things. I can speak for him on this 100%. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Both of us are stayers. We're not right. leaders. We're stayers. And I said, you know, you stay wherever, wherever God has you until he makes it impossible to. Yeah. And he, if there's anything, I, I love to think about this with Genesis chapter 12, because I feel like this is so strategic and the very end, the Great Commission at the very end of Matthew's gospel, when where the word is, the action verb is go, go in both mm-hmm. of those, you know, those, those enormous um, uh, eras of time. And it's the same thing. God is perfectly capable of telling us where to go. So I assume I'm staying unless I am told by the Holy Spirit of God very strongly in my heart and not once, but over and over go. And in that, to leave, to be willing to leave those relationships and to hope, I don't know about you. I think that it's the same, but I, I think there are probably some that will never recover. Yeah. But a few of them we're sort of finding our our way again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, same thing here. Yes, yeah. but you Very know I, well, when I talk about the sort of nostalgic, sentimental part yes. of me, as you know, the one who does not have that in our house is Maria, uh, and so she she sort of Keith calls the well. Stockholm syndrome, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> she has she has no moments of uh, longing or Keith looking either. backward. So Keith, Keith, you know what? Let, no, and let's say that's fair 
because I'm going to tell you something, mess with me, but don't mess with my people. Yeah. And so yeah. we have to give them that. Um, Russ, you, you know, from reading the memoir that at the time of a lot of this drama from uh, 16 to let's say spring, late spring of 21, which is when I announced that I was, would be, you know, that I was stepping away from the, the SBC. Um, Keith was very, very sick in the early part of it and unable to process a lot of what was happening. So he is now processing a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And I really feel for him. I told the girls, and when I say the girls, I'm talking about my daughters, Amanda and Melissa, Mm -hmm. because he calls but both of them and has to, you know, he has to really hash it out. And he's going on another thing too. And he'll look up. So I said, honey, get off the internet. Right. It's not going to do anybody any good, but no, he yes. has nothing. He wants to, he wants the woodshed ministry. He really yes. does. He yes. really does. So we have to let them have that because it's hard to watch your loved one go through something like that. So it'd be really interesting to have Keith and Maria go on tour I together. I thought it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear Lord. Something we have never talked about. I discovered in uh, All My Knotted Up Life. Uh, I, I think it's been a long time since because I read it, you know, when you when you first wrote it. And so it, it may have been somewhere else. But I think it was in the memoir that we both have uh, grandmothers who dip snuff. Absolutely. 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 <laughs> and I, I realized now that I did, said that, that my grandmother is in heaven saying, you don't tell people that the pastor's <laughs> wife dips stuff. I mean, <laughs> it was the pastor's wife? <laughs> yes. Well, oh, what yes. Is, one of the things, mine was my great-grandmother. And he, you got to understand, to a child, what does great-grandmother mean? Because to me, it was like, I don't think she's that great. You know, because we had a grandmother that lived with us. And I was like, why isn't she great grandmother? Because she's my favorite grandmother. But but this grandmother wore her hair up in a top knot. And I I could just swear and declare as I look back on it that she had to have worn it up like that because else it would dangle in her can. (laughs) And she always kept her can in a paper bag, like someone would take around, you know, like a bottle of bourbon or something. But it, oh my gosh, yes. Anything classic Arkansas, this would have been my heritage. Anything, let me say, instead of classic Arkansas, let me say um, rural Arkansas. Right. That was, both of my parents came from rural Arkansas. So yes, everything about it, just classic. Yes. And I wouldn't trade anything for it. Yeah. So from uh, snuff uh, using grandmother to pipe smoking Anglican in just a few generations. Just a few generations. But isn't the Lord good to supply what is lacking in our faith? That's exactly right. And, uh, And I guarantee that when uh, when Malcolm Geit comes into town again, I'm going to make sure that we're all together and he can show us how to blow smoke rings or I, something like that. I, there, that has <laughs> got, I'm willing. I'm willing. I have told him I will inhale. I'm ready. <laughs> I just, I, I'm going to do it. Here we are with chewing tobacco and cigarettes and <laughs> pipes. This is why they ran us out of the Southern Medicine Convention. <laughs> you are 100% Always right. Always 100% it. right. Well, the book is All My Knotted Up Life, a memoir. It's it's phenomenal. And there are a lot of people, I'll say this, Beth, there are a lot of people who can teach and preach and work through the Bible. uh, But writing this sort of a gripping, uh, very personal uh, beautifully crafted uh, mm-hmm. sort of memoir. Not many people can do all of that. Mm-hmm. And so it's really, it's really striking. Thank so you so congratulations much on this. Thank and, you so much for that. And I was thinking about this morning, when I was thinking about talking to you today, I was thinking about in one of those really dark moments in 2016, 2017, somewhere. Friend of mine, uh, Andrew Peterson, singer, uh, brought me a uh, a little a little lamp, uh, lamp, uh, oil lamp uh, from Gethsemane Abbey uh, because he knows that I go there a lot. He does too. Uh, he gave that to me, and he gave me a note that came at just the right time that I I actually framed it. 
and, uh, and, and put it up and I look at it all the time. And he says, um, you remember that uh, thing that Galadriel gave Frodo? She says, may I be a light for you in dark places when all other lights go out. And maybe this will remind you of that. And yes. it, it really was. Oh. And I want to say from this Frodo, uh, you were and are too. And I am thankful to God for your friendship and for your ministry. Thank you so much for that, brother. I tell you, I've said to you many times and we'll say it again, I would not have wanted to miss this friendship for anything. And listen, it was hard won and I am so thankful for it. Thank you so much. Well, it's always Mother's Day somewhere, so you keep... (laughs) Keep speaking and teaching and writing and uh, onward. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Thank you, my brother. I've been waiting until I could tell you all about this. I have a new book coming out on August the 1st of this year. It's called Losing Our Religion, An Altar Call for Evangelical America. And really what this book is about is how to navigate the craziness that we're all facing right now. How did we get to the point of uh, exhaustion that so many people are facing? Why why are so many people uh, leaving the church? Uh, Not because they can't believe what the church teaches, but because they don't believe the church believes what the church teaches. How can evangelical Christianity ever turn around? What would that look like and how do we get there? That's what this book is about. And you can uh, pre-order it in the show notes. And I look forward to sharing it with you August 1st. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosford. Hosted by Russell Moore. Produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers, Abby Perry and Azare Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Kolb. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Production assistance provided by Core Media. Audio engineer is Kevin Duthu. Coordinator is Beth Gravencourt. Video producer is John Rowland. The theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. 